Let us pray together. Well, Lord, you are so good and so generous. It's impossible for us to comprehend your grace. We pray that uh, you might open our hearts and our minds that we indeed can see your glory. Today, Lord, as we reflect upon this particular time of the year, the season in which we find ourselves, we pray that you would make us mindful of your blessing, but also of your person, who you are. Forgive us, Lord, for presuming upon your provision. Give us eyes to recognize all the ways that you sustain us. Lord, show us the sin that so commonly corrupts our heart and affects our view, our perspective of things. Bring conviction and repentance to bear upon our hearts. I pray that your Spirit would fill us with a true desire to honor you and only you. Your Word tells us to give thanks in all circumstances. That's not easy for us to do. In fact, it's very difficult. Our flesh yearns for comfort and ease, for shelter from hardship. Lord, we often complain and despise our circumstances. We ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for any ungrateful spirit in us, for doubting your goodness. Remind us of the countless ways you shower your love upon us. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would animate true gratitude within us. Conform us to Christ. Give us minds that are patterned after His. Make us a humble and passionate people, desiring fellowship and intimacy with You. May our lives, Lord, reflect Your glory in all circumstances. We give thanks to You, Father. For apart from You, we are nothing. Give us ears to hear You speak, hearts to obey. Make Your gospel, Lord, abound here in this place today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Psalm 138. I don't know about you. I am so enjoying our journey through the Psalms. I'm not sure when it's going to end. We've only done about 20 out of the 150. We may take a break after the first of the year for a while, for a season, but it's been a, a great journey through. The Psalms represent or offer us, touch upon almost every emotion known to human beings. That's why I think we enjoy it so much. We find reflections of ourselves, our problems, our struggles there in its pages. This one, obviously, focuses upon thankfulness, thanksgiving. What a timely message for us today to think about what all the psalmist wants us to hear. The, the 
eight verses before us are really divided into three movements, if you will, or three stanzas of a hymn. David introduces to us some things about himself. He points us to himself and his heart in the very early stages. Then he offers kind of a parenthetical musing or something there. He's thinking about the state of the world, the state of leadership in the world, the state of kings, if you would. And then he concludes with his confidence in the future because of who God is. So let's unpack these movements this morning and pray for God's wisdom to speak into our lives as we are into Thanksgiving week. That This would help us approach it maybe in a way that's more honoring to God than is our typical pattern. First of all, these first three verses, we see the psalmist's thankful heart. He says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. C.H. Spurgeon once said that we need a broken heart to mourn our sin, but a whole heart to praise God. That's what David seems to be echoing here. I give thanks to you. I give gratitude. I acknowledge you and praise you with a whole heart. This is not just vain talk or lip service. It's not reciting something by rote. Yes, the lips and the mouth, the tongue, is the instrument through which it passes, but it flows out of a heart. It's rooted deep within a heart of affection for God, a recognition for who God is. I would also suggest to you, this is not possible coming from a heart of stone, but only that heart of flesh that God gives when He changes us, when He transforms us into his people. David's not timid or reserved or careful in his thanksgiving. He says, before the gods, I sing your praise. Some translations may say angels. It may say judges or kings here. I think that gods is a better way to render it. I think it's a great translation. I think David is pointing back in his own mind and experience Maybe as far back as 1 Samuel 26, when Saul was in pursuit. Saul desired to kill David. And his men were calling out to David and encouraging him. David says, as he's asking Saul, why are you doing this? I've proven myself to be loyal to you. Why, why are you persisting in this direction, attempting to kill me, to take my life why am I a threat to you? Your men encouraged me. In the midst of all this polytheism, they've encouraged me to go worship another god, to go and, and join with these other gods, but I will not do that. I will not do that. I remain loyal and true to God. He said, if I have transgressed against God, then I will offer a sacrifice to Him, but it sounds more like your men are stirring you up against me. And it's not a right place. Even surrounded by other gods, he says, I will sing your praise. It's like living in a heavily Muslim country. 
and being willing to stand openly and fervently for your faith and trust in Christ. Refusing to honor Allah, but instead saying, I will worship Yahweh. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember? They were, it was decreed that everyone should bow down to this huge image of Nebuchadnezzar out in the valley. And they said, no, we'll not do that. Our devotion, our affection belongs to God and God alone. I read about a young woman who was in seminary and she came out of a Muslim background and uh, her family, obviously, there was a lot of stress, a lot of tension there. And she had a, a Muslim uncle who took a leg from a chair and proceeded to beat her, beating her to death, literally, until her dad intervened and rescued her. And in seminary, she had the opportunity for her testimony to be rehearsed in front of a group of people. And someone asked her the question and said, What was going through your mind as your uncle was beating you to death with that chair leg? This is what she said. She said, I was thinking this man has a religion he would kill for. And I have a Savior I would die for. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. And that's exactly what she was doing. Friends, our culture is inundated with countless idols. They're on every hand. They're, they surround us in even thicker fashion than the polytheism was around Israel in David's day. Sexual promiscuity, materialistic greed, narcissism. Giving thanks to Yahweh means singing, living his praise even among such idols. Giving ourselves completely, not partially, but wholly, of a whole heart unto the Lord. In other words, valuing Him above all things. I bow down towards you, David says, your holy temple. In other words, your, your dwelling place. Many in our country this week will talk about thankfulness. They'll talk about thanksgiving. And I believe that as it goes, most of us are sincere in that. But I think we have a different definition. We have a different parameters about what our thankfulness involves. I think everyone is thankful for their lives, for their blessings, for their families. But David is saying so much more here. He's not limiting his gratitude for what he has received, but he is expressing his thanks and gratitude for who God is. I wonder if we lost all of those things, if they were taken from us, our families, our blessings, our comforts, would we still be as thankful? To your name, he says, I will sing praise. To your name, for your loyal, faithful, covenant love. For you have magnified your name and promise above all else. The name. You know, it's amazing. I did a little research this week how many times the word name is used in Scripture. It seems to carry this massive connotation. The name of God. He tells us in Psalm 8.1, O Lord, how, our Lord, how majestic is your name 
in all the earth. In Exodus 9, 16, as he sent Moses before Pharaoh, listen to his words. For this purpose, he says, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, Pharaoh was under the illusion that his name was what was important. That his position, his stature, his power, his recognition, that's what was important. God said, look, I've given you a platform. I've given you this platform for a time and a place specific to my own glory, that I might make my name great for all to see. We're told later, the Apostle Paul writing to the Roman church said that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts chapter 4 tells us there is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved except that of whom? Of Christ Jesus himself. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11, we are told to have the mind of Christ. And that we're told that God has given him a name that is above every name and that at that name every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His name is important. His name is critical. Not just His blessings, not just the things He gives us that makes our lives have some sort of superior quality in this world, not even what He promises in the world to come, but who He is as Yahweh over all things. For you have answered my prayers, he says. Those prayers were timely and they were effective. My strength of soul you increased. If there is anything worthy of our whole occupation, it is praising and offering thanks to Yahweh. Secondly, the psalmist gives us this parenthetical reflection if you will it's a compelling story the psalmist compelling story here this section David tells us how he feels about the Lord but that's not how the world feels he rehearses how the world feels here and where that's headed he connects back to Psalm 2 the second Psalm where he says this why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us what's he describing he's describing a world that wants nothing to do with God doesn't want to be shackled to God or tied to God or bound to God or controlled by God or owing any allegiance to the law of God but people that want to rebel and do their own thing this world is engaged in mass rebellion against Yahweh all the kings world leaders do not typically offer thanks to God when's the last time you heard one do that even though scripture is clear they are holding their position they are on their platform simply because Yahweh has decreed it to be so Human history records a chilling list of wicked leaders. Diabolical tyrants, if you will. It's been said that one man's hero is another man's tyrant. Let me just offer a few to help us reflect on 
what our history has looked like. What about Julius Caesar? Caligula, he's known as. He executed political rivals while making their parents watch as he did it. He declared himself to be a living God. He slept with his sisters and then sold their services to others who would pay. He named his horse a priest. I don't mean he gave him a name, the priest. He made him a priest. What's wrong with that kind of thinking? Or how about Genghis Khan, who slaughtered civilians in mass? He and his men, when they went to war, they took unskilled workers and used them as living shields against the enemy's artillery. Tamur, Tamerlane, founded the Tamurid Empire. He led military raids across much of Western Asia. In what we know as modern Afghanistan, he built a tower to himself. You say, well, what's wrong with that? You know, that's what they all do, right? They build a monument to themselves. He built a tower by stacking living men on top of one another and then bringing brick and mortar to cement it all together. What about Queen Mary I? She was the only child of notorious King Henry VIII and his wife Catherine of Aragon. Immediately after being installed as queen, she reinstalled Catholicism across the country, uprooting the Protestant direction the country had been in through several rulers. And then she proceeded to burn at the stake Protestants upon hundreds after hundreds, earning her the name Bloody Mary. Or King Leopold II of Belgium, who founded the Congo Free State as his own private colony and made most of the population slaves to carry out this prosperous industry, extracting ivory and rubber for himself. Millions of people starved. Tens of thousands were shot trying to escape or rebel. It's estimated that he reduced the population of the country by 50% through his radical agenda. And that's not talking about people that we're familiar with, like Hitler and the Nazis of Germany who exterminated some 11 million people. You realize that's the population of the state of Georgia, basically? Mao Zedong is considered by many a hero. He industrialized China, unified it, and many hold him in great esteem for that. But they don't talk about the 40 million people that he killed in that process. Pol Pot killed 2 million in Cambodia in four years. And as president of Uganda, Idi Amin murdered 300,000 civilians in eight years. It fascinates me to hear people talk about how Man is progressing. Yes, he's progressing. He's progressing in his attempts and his efforts to be a cold-hearted, blooded murderer. Because we have been that since sin entered the world when Cain took the life of Abel. And Lamech threatened anyone who would dare oppose him. And it's been getting worse ever since. 
No man. Man is not progressing. He's not getting better. The reality and truth is that this world has fallen, it's broken, and depraved human beings are not making anything better because it is not within them to do so. We do not have the power to do so. We do not have the will to do so. Everything we're doing that we call progressivism is simply self-exaltation. Progressive in my way of thinking, not progressive in reality. But, Psalm 2 says, the Lord holds them in derision. (laughs) That's a dangerous place to be. That God, Yahweh Himself, holds you in derision. He is glorious and benevolent as a heavenly Father. The gospel is His answer for this depraved and wicked world. The gospel promises hope for a restored creation and a perfect future. Listen, Psalm 2, 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And those who repent of their depravity can be forgiven. Christ's finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is the way, is the path, and the only way that our depravity can be turned in to righteousness. Trust in Christ's promise, and you may be saved from God's judgment. Psalm 102, 15-17 says, Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in His glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Psalm 72, 11 through 13, May all kings fall down before Him, all nations serve Him, for He delivers the needy when He calls, the poor and Him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak, on the humble, the needy, and He saves them. He gives life, yet many will not repent. Many will not face the truth. And receive His grace. Many will remain defiant until they leave this world. But that's not the end of the story. The defiant ones will not simply cease to exist. They will face God's eternal judgment in hell. Whether they be kings or whether they be paupers. Those who reject God's grace will be condemned to hell. They will confess God's glory before they go. That's what he tells us here. They're going to confess God's glory before they go. They will confess His glory, which infinitely exceeds any temporal honor that they have coveted for themselves in this world. They use the weak and the lowly to prop themselves up for a season. But God, the almighty, high, exalted God, all-powerful God, regards the lowly, the humble, the repentant, while He holds the haughty and the arrogant at a distance, pending their judgment. Philippians 2, 9-11, I quoted for you a moment ago, says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
Did you hear that? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, for the glory of God the Father. All of those who have called upon Him and repented of sin will find it easy to exalt Christ, to lift up His name, to praise and thank His name. But even those who have, who have defiantly rejected Him in this world, the day is coming when they too will bow the knee and confess that God is deserving of all glory and all honor. In verses 7 and 8, we see the psalmist's enduring confidence. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, he says. You love those TV movies, those drama shows where, you know, the, uh, the, the tension builds. There's a bomb or there's a gas tank in a, in a crashed car that's getting ready to explode. And, and the hero is trying to get away and just lunges just out of, the, out of the explosion path, right? Just enough to save himself in a moment. That's not what David's explaining here. That's not what he's saying. David's not talking about being near the trouble and just being able to get out of its way. He's talking about being in the deepest, darkest inner sanctum of the bowels of the trouble. I'm in the midst of trouble, he says. I referred to that story that we find in Daniel chapter 3 earlier where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rejected the king's edict to bow down to the image uh, out in that 90 cubic high or 90 feet high image that had been erected out there that, that they were told they had to bow down and worship. And they said, we will not. We're going to worship God and Yahweh alone. And the king was furious. He was so angry. And he told them the, the punishment was to be thrown into a furnace of fire. And so what did he do? He said, heat it up seven times hotter than it is. It was so hot that the text says when they went to throw these three Hebrew men into the fire furnace that the guards were vaporized. That's hot. We call that white hot. They should have been vaporized themselves, eviscerated in midair as they were tossed in. Nothing but ashes, and even the ashes to disappear. The text says that the king was astonished. He sat upright immediately. He looked and he said, how many people did we throw in? They said three. He said, there's four in there walking around. They were not hurt. The fire had no power over them. Their hair was not singed. The text tells us this. Their clothes did not, were not damaged by fire. When they came out, they didn't even smell of smoke. David says, I walked through trouble through fiery ordeals, and you preserve my life. You animate my life. You guard my life. You give me life, life that cannot be touched by anything that this world has to offer. God stretches out His hand against the wrath of David's enemies and ours. 
the ungodly bullies of this world, think they are wrathful, but they have not seen wrath yet until they see the wrath of a holy God unleashed against sin. The Lord will fulfill His promise for me, He says. No one cuts that short. No one terminates that. Your covenant love, O Lord, it endures forever. He gives a threefold promise here. God will preserve me. God will fulfill His purpose for me. And God will never forsake me. The work of His hands. It goes on. It presses on. I want to give you three challenges to consider in response to this message this morning. One, I want you to challenge you this week of all weeks. It should be every week. But I challenge you this week to give thanks to the Lord with your whole heart. Not just through the cultural platitudes that we muster up, but with the whole heart. Kindle afresh the affection and the gratitude in your heart for who God is. Not what He's done for you. Number two, do not be deceived or intimidated by the braggarts and the bullies of this fallen world. They don't get the last word. They do not have the last word. I don't care what's on the news. I don't care what's in the paper. I don't even care what's online. I know that's heresy. But don't be deceived or intimidated by the braggarts and bullies of this fallen world. Take God's word to be the truth. And thirdly, in the midst of trouble, rest in Christ's faithful covenant love. Trust Him. Look, if you, you don't have to go any further than what we've experienced this year as a church to know that you can trust Him in the worst possible circumstances. You can give thanks in all circumstances. You can. He's proven it over and over and over. He's a faithful God no matter what our senses may be telling us. David David makes a glorious presentation of this and a reminder of this for us. That we would not be subject to just going through the motions this week, but that we might review and reflect upon who God is and have hearts that are overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving. Join me in praying. Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are. You, indeed, are great and holy God. We praise you for the time that we've had this morning in your word. We pray that, Lord, indeed, you would make us grateful people, thankful people, not because of the things that you've given us. We should be thankful for those things, for our families, for our lives, for our blessings. But, Lord, let it all begin, find its root, its source in our gratitude for who you are. And the fact that you love us and that you demonstrate a covenant love for us that is steadfast, unchanging, and permanent forever. Equip us, Lord, to be faithful singers, proclaimers of your glory for all the world to see. And above all, Lord, help us to rest in you when this world seems to be coming apart at the seams and frayed 
in so many different ways that you would remind us that it's headed toward restoration. It's headed toward recreation. You've promised it. You've done everything necessary to produce it. And now we're waiting for the fullness of time when you will make it become reality. We thank you for who you are and bless you today. In Jesus' name, amen.